What is up, movie friends? Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. I'm Anthony. And I'm James, and we have a very exciting episode today for episode 48. We are doing Tenant by Chris Nolan. We are very excited to talk about this. We've been saving it for a while. We wanted to make sure everyone had a chance to see it, so we wanted to wait for it to come out on VOD. So now everyone's had, what, five days to see it since it came out on the 15th? Yeah, and we actually drove down to San Diego from, from LA to see this movie in theaters because uh, the only theaters open at the time in California were two in san diego so we made a big road trip to see this film and it was absolutely worth the drive yeah and the five hours of total of driving was totally worth it we also got some red robin too which was cool red robin and uh so that's yeah, not an ad yeah it's not an ad at all <laughs> don't worry we should get them for an yeah. ad <laughs> but um we've been saving this we didn't want to spoil it for everyone so we haven't done really any any tiktok clips any episodes any youtube videos on it because again we wanted to give everyone a chance to see it yeah so extraordinary circumstances yeah and you know yeah. we didn't want to spoil it for everyone but now we're going to spoil the hell out of this movie if you have not seen it yet. If you have seen it, buckle up. We're going to explain everything that happened. Yeah, if you haven't seen it, spoilers are coming. So please watch the movie first if you'd like to and then check this episode out. But either way, we're going to talk in depth about everything Tenet. Yeah, and I tried to replicate protagonist outfit as much as I could with my own wardrobe. I think I did a pretty good job. Yeah, you have literally the same outfit yeah, as him. It's like the it's the H and M version of his very expensive clothing. So <laughs> it's the sixty dollar version. I think I pulled it off. But uh, <laughs> Tenet is a very is very much the culmination of Chris Nolan's obsession with the concept of time. Memento, Inception, Interstellar very much deal with the concept of time and its manipulation. In Memento, the story is told in both reverse and forward storylines. We've talked about that before. Inception deals with time changing and dreams. And Interstellar deals with relativity as well as obviously interdimensional travel. Dunkirk is actually told in a triptych plot of three different perceptions of time all occurring at the one at the same event. And then Tenet takes Nolan's fascination with this concept of time and just pushes it even further. Yeah, I think uh, some people are are a little sick of him with the time themes in his movies, but I think that's just his voice as a writer and director. To, and I think it's not so much he's obsessed with time, but I think he's just fascinated by time because it is something that affects the, everything. Time affects everything. There's no way we can change it. We barely understand it, and we, we experience the world through time. And so I think it's a, a theme and an idea that isn't explored enough, and I think that He's the, really the only filmmaker that really presses the boundaries of exploring the ideas of time through scientific, metaphorical um, stories that he tells with his, with his films. And I think he recognizes that time is the most valuable resource that human beings have. Whether you recognize that or not, you'll always wish you had more time, or sometimes it doesn't seem like time is passing fast enough. And so I think he recognizes that, and it's what makes people so curious and want to sit through these movies that a lot of times they don't even comprehend what's going on, but they'll sit through it because, again, obviously the, the visuals are stunning and the stories are complex, but time is something we're all obsessed with. Yeah, exactly. It's a great mystery. And then once again, Chris Nolan brought us a movie that we had never seen before. I think that no matter what you think about his films, whether you like them or not, you can't help but admit that he is always pushing the boundaries and trying something new with his stories. And when you walk out of this movie especially, I guarantee you've never seen anything like it before. I mean, what other director can get $300 million to make a movie from an original screenplay that I'm sure no one at Warner Brothers Studio even understood? <laughs> He's earned it. He's earned that for sure. When you it. make a studio billions of dollars, you can do whatever you want. Tens of billions, and you know, mm -hmm. um, I'm very excited to talk about this. But before we get into the episode, let's talk about the ads that brought it to you. This episode is sponsored by MoviePosters.com. Use coupon code RAIDERS15 to get 15% off your order today. Again, Raiders 15 
to get 15% off your order at movieposters.com. This episode is also brought to you by Manscaped. Get 20% off your order and free shipping using coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout. Again, Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping from your order at manscaped.com. If you like our podcast and want to help support us, the best thing you can do is subscribe to our YouTube channel and spread the word. We're mostly growing word of mouth. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, where you listen to podcasts. You can check us out. Leaving a five-star review is super beneficial for us to get seen by new podcast listeners, especially the written ones. We read every single one of them, so we love to hear what you guys write. And we also have a Patreon where you can support us monthly, where members get special perks like personalized videos, messages behind the scenes, peeks at new episodes, and a monthly shout-out on the podcast for our top-tier patrons. So thank you to everyone who's been supporting us so much. And as always, spoilers are abound. Tenet was released on September 3rd, 2020, written and directed by Christopher Nolan. The film stars John David Washington, Robert Pattinson, Elizabeth Debicki, Kenneth Branagh, Dimple Cabadilla, and Michael Caine. This film had a budget of $205 million and a worldwide gross of $359 million. Armed with only one word, Tenet, and fighting for the survival of the entire world, a protagonist journey through a twilight world of international espionage on a mission that will unfold in something beyond real time. Obviously, the first thing we should talk about when uh, talking about this movie Tenet is, I think, the main concept involved in the story, which makes it possible, and that's time inversion. And the idea of inversion, um, which uh, can can be confused with time travel, it's not quite time travel. Time inversion itself means that um, when you are inverted, you are moving backwards through time. You can't, like, it's not like a time machine where it just transports you to, like, 100 years in the past or whatever. When you enter this machine, it exit it, and now you're moving backwards through time from that point onward. And you're experiencing time backwards in real time, meaning that you age normally. So if you want to go 10 years in the past, you actually have to invert for 10 years. Yeah, so you're living for 10 years in your inverted timeline going backwards. And a, a really smart way that Chris Nolan shows this, and I think this is scientifically the way they do it too, and in medical in science fields, I'm not a I'm not a scientist, so but um with red and blue and and red is the color true, for yeah. for forward timelines, and then blue is the color for inverted timelines. This is obviously shown in the the ending battle where some of the soldiers in in the forwards timelines are wearing red, and then the inverted soldiers are wearing blue. So you can, these are these are markers that you can see throughout the film too. Like the first time that Neil and protagonist uh, go to the uh, turnstile to be inverted, or they, they fight the inverted uh, duo. Again, there's that marker of blue and red. And so oh, yeah. blue, again, is inverted. Red is normal forwards track of time. Yeah, and you see it in the opening credit logos as well. The Warner Brothers and Sin Copy logos are red and blue, respectively. And if you're watching on YouTube, you see it on our set. We got the, the red and blue lights. So, yeah, so this half of the set is going forwards through time, and then this half is going backwards through time. This was done by design. <laughs> and now when you're moving forward and you're so you're in the red plane and you're you're just moving forward normally anyone that has been inverted or any object that has been inverted is moving backwards and so you perceive that motion of that object or person as being in reverse and vice versa when you are inverted whenever you see an, another person who's moving forward in a normal way vert in a inverted way they also appear to be going in reverse so your perspective on time changes based on what plane you're in and objects are inverted too as as we start to learn in the beginning when protagonist is being taught everything or not everything is being taught specific things with the bullets and how he's catching bullets and how he can move the bullet on the table without actually having it do something first because yeah. these objects exist in the present or past 
in their place for you or your younger or older version for you to find or use or for someone else to find and use in these bullets, the gold or the doomsday device, or they theorize that someday a nuclear weapon can be inverted and then cause the end of, of humanity as we know it. Exactly. A line that is repeated a few times in the movie is that uh, whatever happens, happens, and whatever happened will happen. And so the idea of inversion is that it's not time travel because you can't change the past. It's not like Back to the Future where you can go and change the outcome of what's going to happen. Uh, in Tenet, when you invert yourself, you are just experiencing things that are always already going to happen. And so, for example, when protagonist is learning about the bullet, and it at first he doesn't know how to grab the bullet, and then when uh, Barbara the scientist tells him that it's instinctual and you have to actually want to desire to possess the bullet, and then the bullet flies up in his hand because what happened was instinctually he was grabbing the bullet inverted, but what really happened was he always grabbed the bullet in that moment, and it's it's you can't think too hard about um, choice and free will. It's not really a free will thing. It's more of a instinctual this already is going to happen, and this is how it happens. So you can kind of picture in your mind that Chris Nolan didn't show it, but he sh- but really what what protagonist really did with his with his thought in mind was he picked up the bullet then dropped it, but he, they didn't show it. It's because he was gonna do it, and that's why he's able to do it. Yeah. Again, what happens happens. And a few things that another line that's that's spoken through the film, which is really important, is ignorance is our ammunition, and also don't try to understand it because. The, the the more you think about it, the more maybe confused you'll drive you crazy. Get. Yeah, if you haven't already figured out the movie or you haven't figured out the concepts, you haven't figured out inversion or these pre- predetermined loops, um, it's best to just maybe not think too much about it and just try to enjoy it as much as you can. Because I know some people still can't really grasp all the concepts. Concepts and something else I think is important to realize is that once you invert yourself, there's going to be multiple versions of you existing in these timelines, which is all, again, it's all one predetermined loop, but there can be multiple versions of you bouncing around or occurring at the same time, different places of the timeline, or sometimes in the same place of the timeline. So every time you invert yourself, there's going to be going to be three versions of yourself. There's going to be the rever- there's going to be the inverted version of yourself, the reverted normal version of yourself, and then the then the next inverted reversion of yourself because you're eventually going to come out of that inversion. So every time you do it, there's going to be three of you. In some characters, there is upwards of six, I think even more characters of themselves bouncing around the timelines at any given period of time. Try to understand that, yeah. <laughs> and then this concept is uh, played out in the action, um, and it's called the temporal pincer, in which a subject will send a party backwards in time by inversion while also sending a party forwards through times in a normal plane but also uh, interacting in the same situation this way uh, for example the villain satyr in this film uses the temporal pincer as a way of understanding uh, how things play out and then he can invert himself and change and and adapt to what already took place and so um, this gives you the opportunity to to already know what the future is gonna what what the future is gonna uh, unfold. So Sator does this temporal pincer during that highway chase scene, about halfway through the film. And protagonist doesn't know it yet what just happened, but Ives explains to him that it's a time bending technique for missions. You approach it moving forward in time, and then approach it in reverse, moving backwards from the future. Each side using the knowledge that the other side gained from having already experienced it, except both sides are actually experiencing it simultaneously. And for those who are inverted. When you are living throughout, when you are experiencing inversion, uh, you have to wear an oxygen mask because everything is in reverse. Every molecule, every atom, 
is moving in a reverse motion. And so the atomic makeup of oxygen is actually in reverse, which makes it carbon monoxide. So you can't breathe the air when you are inverted, hence the reason why all of the characters have to wear masks. It's a good way to determine throughout the film who's inverted if they have a gas mask on. There's a very good chance they are definitely inverted, although there are some situations where someone has a gas mask on, they've maybe reverted from inversion and they're trying to hide their identity. This episode of Raiders of the Lost podcast is brought to you by Manscaped, the leaders in men's below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your comfort, obsesses over their technology developments to provide you the best tools for your grooming experience. Grooming is a necessary part of life. I don't care who you are. You know, you don't want to be uh, coming out of COVID looking like Tom Hanks and Castaway, okay? So... <laughs> Use coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping from manscaped.com. They've been awesome. They've sent us every single product they have, their performance packages. It was so cool to get those in the box. They sent us cologne, deodorizers, t-shirts, briefs, their lawnmower buzzer is the greatest clippers I've ever used in my life. They have a flashlight, they're waterproof, you can use in the shower. Manscaped is a great gift for all the men in your life. Use coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping today. And so I think we can talk about the main conflict of the movie, the main setup of the movie, which is John David Washington's character, the protagonist, is tasked with trying to stop uh, pretty much an end-of-day situation for the entire world. And it's not a threat that is an atomic bomb that's going to wipe out half the planet. This is a threat that will wipe out the entire history of existence. Yeah, I actually have a great plot if I can read it from New Rockstars. Hey, read it. So this is... Um, the plot of Tenet, basically. In the future, a scientist creates an algorithm to invert all of time. The algorithm was encoded into nine different artifacts scattered throughout the world, inverted into radioactive locations. In his youth, Andre Sater took a job at digging up plutonium from a radioactive test site and, a fa and found a container full of gold and instructions to track down all the pieces of this algorithm. Now, this, take pla this takes place way before the film. Yeah. Seder works for the people of the future who want him to find the artifacts and bury them all in one secret location in the Soviet city Stalks 12, where the algorithm would stay buried for 200 years for them to find in the future. They would then use the algorithm to destroy our present and past to save their future and counteract things like climate change. Seder planned to kill himself to signal that the artifacts were all in place. The protagonist and the organization Tenet use inverted timelines to prevent Seder from accomplishing this goal. And so when the film starts, Seder has accumulated eight of the artifacts, eight of the pieces of the algorithm, and he's looking for the ninth piece. And now the algorithm is not written and it's not any kind of code. Uh, in order to make it uh, unintelligible for other people, this uh, scientist in the future she uh, created the algorithm in the form of a physical structure with nine different pieces. And once you put these structures together in a certain way, that creates the algorithm. And so um, they're trying to prevent Seder from acquiring the ninth uh, item. And this ninth item is the artifact which uh, the protagonist finds in the opening of the film. You said earlier about the uh, worldwide gross of the film is what, $356 million? Something like that, yeah. It only made $56 million domestically in America. And obviously, this happened, we all know, because uh, before this film was set to be released, the coronavirus lockdown uh, was set in place across the entire United States. And uh, this film 
went through a tumultuous period of trying to figure out when they were going to release it because information was still not out and no one really knew when it would be safe to release it or when theaters would ever open again. And when it finally did open in September, uh, there were a handful of theaters were playing it. Like we said, only two in California were playing it at the time. So this film grossed extremely low numbers. Uh, I think it was expected to make at least $800 million, uh, if it opened in a normal period. And so I think that um, obviously it's a disappointment, but I think it's still impressive that the movie even pulled in money. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I'm sure they'll make even more money because it's out on VOD now and you can't rent it. You have to purchase it. But obviously, there's going to be some 4K and probably HD uh, streams of it that you can find or torrent to download. So I really hope people do actually pay for it so that this film deserves the recognition in, in box office that it it made because it probably didn't make its money back because I mean the budget was 200 million but Nolan always goes a little over budget I'm sure it was like probably 300 350 million counting marketing yeah I'd say it was around 300 if you include marketing to it so it, it, it this movie needs to make 500 million to break even I would say all right let's get into the characters starting with the fantastic John David Washington who plays protagonist and for those of you unfamiliar that's the name of the characters protagonist so if you hear us saying protagonist they're like why do they keep calling the protagonist the protagonist it's his name yeah. doesn't he have a character name and not only is John David Washington obviously Denzel Washington's son which we've talked about before but he's an incredibly talented guy we saw that in Black Klansman and uh, he was on that show Ballers too um, but he was a professional athlete too and John David Washington was a running back in the NFL he got drafted in 2006 undrafted I mean by the uh, the St. Louis Rams, and I think on top of his talent, his athletic ability was one of the determining factors, I'm sure, for Chris Nolan casting him in this role because this is a very physical role, and it's clear that his athleticism came into play because a lot of the fighting that they do is it's actually choreographed reverse fighting. So they manage; it's almost more like a dance than actual normal fight routine. So it's they, they practice and train and basically developed reverse fighting techniques to film these fighting techniques down these hallways and everything. And it's it's really cool. It's I've never seen anything like it before. It's 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 just like a breath of fresh air for like just action scenes in general. Yeah, the the fights are really heart pounding because you've never seen anything like it before. And John David Washington, there's some really cool footage online where you can see him actually learning the choreography of the fights in reverse. So they didn't reverse the footage here. He actually learned it backwards and he played it both ways for either side of the fight. And it looks fantastic, and because, like you said, he's a, he was a professional athlete, you're able to not have to put in uh, stunt people for his scenes, and you can really see his face, and you can shoot it wide, and you don't have to edit it that much. So that's why a lot of these these action sequences are uh, much less cutting than usual for a Chris Nolan film, and they look absolutely fantastic. And, and I think John David Washington was a great choice because he's a relatively unknown actor, and the most famous people in the cast are the supporting characters, and so I think that was a smart way to cast the film. Yeah, and he proved that he can carry not just a, a lead role in a film, but he can carry a $300 million production on his shoulders, and he knocked it out of the park in this role. Yeah, This episode of Raiders of the Lost Podcast is sponsored by MoviePosters.com. Use coupon code RAIDERS15 to get 15% off your order today. MoviePosters.com sent us all these amazing 11 by 17 posters you see on our walls. These are high quality. They're really affordable, plus the 15% discount. You're making a steal with these 
It's the holiday season. What's a better gift to get the movie lover in your life than a movie poster? I mean, if you didn't already have movie posters, I'd probably get you one, but you seem like you have enough. If you're going to get me one, get me one from movieposters.com. For sure, because, I mean, they're only $10 a pop for those 11 by 17s and add that coupon code. It's $8.50 a poster. Easy. So when you're going to shop online, go movieposters.com and use coupon code RAIDERS15 to get 15% off your order today. And Protagonist starts out this film. uh, He's just a, a CIA operative. And so that opening opera scene, he's not there for anything regarding Tenet. He's there for uh, a mission that he's been assigned with his with his team. And so that's who he is. He's a, a CIA operative, uh, probably some special forces uh, history. And But obviously there's much more to meet the eye, which we'll get into in a little bit. And then we have Robert Pattinson plays Neil Pattinson. Heck yeah, the Batman. Pattinson, I like and that. And Neil is first introduced to protagonist in this film in Mumbai and although he's supposedly a rookie in this like field of he's like a new contact yeah, yeah. Uh, he, he, he has he knows a lot more than he's letting on and even knowing what kind of drink protagonist likes to have and knows that he doesn't like to drink on the job even though protagonist is told uh, by tenant agents you shouldn't get to know your partners and other work associates and and Robert Pattinson's obviously incredibly charming. He's, he's a great, great actor. I think he's one of the most underrated A-listers out there because he still has this, this dogma of, of the Twilight guy. But <laughs> this guy is very talented. I agree. This is one of my uh, favorite Pattinson roles. And he's absolutely fantastic. Steals every scene he's in. He's, he's very funny um, and sophisticated. But like you said, very charming and uh, he's just very, uh, y- y- you grow to really enjoy his presence, and it's a role that we've never really seen him do. I don't think we've ever seen him do comedy at all before. Not really, or like this charmer, I mean, not counting when he's a vampire, if you want to call that being charming, yeah, that's just being creepy as hell. I don't think anyone's happy in those movies. <laughs> <laughs> but I think um, I was excited when he was cast, and you can see why no one cast him. He's obviously extremely talented, and he ends up being uh, a- an important character to protagonists in this film. And then we have Elizabeth Debicki, who plays Kat, and she's an integral figure to the plot. You may recognize her from uh, The Man from Uncle. She plays the villain in that film, and she's really great in that. Um, she was also in Widows. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She's in Widows. That's yeah. right. With the Viola Davis, mm-hmm. the uh, Steve McQueen film. So she's actually a very terrific actress, too. Um, there's a there's a connection, obviously, between Kat and Neil, which we'll get into in a little bit. But yeah. she's, she's very good in this role. Again, that high society English accent is just – it's so, like – enticing to me for some reason i just love yeah. it so much and and she just knocks this role out of the park yeah and her character is pretty much a estranged wife of Seder, the main villain of this film and he's uh held her pretty much against her will in the marriage by holding uh, a forged painting over her head which she accidentally sold him thinking it was real and so uh, he has blackmailed her into staying with him and if she tries to run away um he'll uh, divorce her and and charge her with the crime of selling her a forgery. So uh, Kat, as a character, is trapped in this life with Seder. Yeah, and so they share a son together, which she never gets to really see. And yeah, she's also, he holds that over her head that yeah. she'll never see his son again if she doesn't mm-hmm. just shut up and play ball with him. And she's also the key to protagonist getting closer to Seder, who's played by Kenneth Branagh. And this guy can act his ass off. One of the most surprising roles I've seen from Kenneth Branagh in years because he really pulled off this like truly evil heartless terrifying villain he's like he's like everything of every bond villain you've ever wanted to have and um <laughs> it's nuts to just see him like go from gilderoy lockhart and chamber of secrets to Seder here oh yeah and he's it's just he has such range as an actor he's phenomenal yeah he's fantastic and it, this is the first uh nolan film with like a a real main villain since the the batman films like the a real like 
fiction, like, fictional, like heady villain. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, because I mean, in Inception, it's it's uh, Cobb's own mind. Yeah, exactly. And so Sater is like we mentioned. He's 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 amassed this wealth and power across the world because, as you mentioned, he had throughout his his adulthood, he has been digging up the inverted time capsules that the people from the future have been sending him of gold as payment for him finding all the different pieces of the algorithm. So he's amassed a fortune doing this, but also uh, all of the sites um, where he finds the pieces of the algorithm, have they are radiated. And so he, as a, as a person, is now suffering from pancreatic cancer, and he's reaching the, he's reaching the end of his life soon. Yeah, so when he was a teenager, and he, he took that contract digging up plutonium at the end of the Soviet Union, a lot of people wouldn't take that job because it's obviously a death sentence, which is what they called it, because you know, you're know you dealing with radioactive materials all around you. And he took it because he needed money. He was a desperate teenager with, with nothing. And so he fortunately was able to make out, but he does he does do the horrific sin of killing his partner there immediately when he finds the gold bars and the instructions. And he's able to have this this interesting communication with the future and these people of the future, and they can kind of communicate back and forth with these time capsules and spreading of information. And so he's doing their work, basically. And it's just that it's not that he was meant to do it. He was just in the right place at the right time. Yeah, and so they communicate, and it's literally a communication almost instantaneously because he'll bury something and then obviously 200 years from now the people in the future will find it and then the people in the future will send gold back but they'll invert it and he'll uncover that and it's as if no time has passed for either perspective we're not like following 200 years it's like for him the pack the material has been inverted 200 years and so it obviously it would show up there immediately for him and that explains that scene with the gold bars on his yacht when the helicopter brings uh, the shipment of gold and he's able to move the gold bars because they're inverted because he got them from the people of the future because again inverted materials you can control them if you know how they work exactly and again satyr's eventual plan even though because he's dying of, of pancreatic cancer and because it's to signal the people of the future that he's completed his mission of the algorithm and burying it inside that time capsule is to kill himself. And when he kills himself at the right moment, the entire world in the present and past will be destroyed. And so his plan is to gather the nine pieces of the algorithm, uh, put them together, and leave them in a time capsule in the town of Stalsk 12. Uh, and he, he's gonna. the plan is to uh, bury them deep in the earth and cause an explosion which would... Uh, uh, throw debris all over this and prevent anyone from fr uncovering it and it will allow the people in the future to uh, uh, unbury it 200 years from now so that's ultimately ultimately his plan and the reason why he uh, is happy to kill himself it's a character trait because uh, his reason for keeping his wife uh, pretty much held against her will in the in the marriage is because he says that if he can't have her no one else can and so he takes the same mentality towards the, the world where if he can't survive, if he's going to die of cancer, then everyone's going to die. And he also mentions something about being a god almost. And so I think that's corrupted his mind as well as that he's amassed this impossible fortune. And he, now he has the power to end the world, which is, I'm sure, intoxicating him and corrupting his mind as well as also dying from pancreatic cancer. Exactly. And there's some more things I want to go over before we get deep into the film, some more concepts like palindromes. And a palindrome is a word or phrase or sequence that reads backwards and forwards identically 
Um, this doesn't apply just to phrases and words, but also the characters themselves in the film because they're constantly inverting and reverting. So they're kind of both traveling forwards and backwards, never truly gaining or losing time. Um, Neil has been moving backwards through time while the protagonist is moving forwards in time. And I think that's a, a main misconception for people. So Neil's story is going inverted backwards and then protagonist is moving forwards. An example of a palindrome is actually the word tenant where it's spelled the same word no matter how way, no matter what way you spell it. And clearly Christopher Nolan was influenced by a real palindrome, uh, which is located in the ruins of Pompeii. It's called the real life Sator square And this square has all the names that are present in the film. Sator, Repo, Rotas, Opera, and Tenet are all present on this square, and they all read backwards and forwards together. And so all these names mean something in the film. So Sator is the villain, Repo is the art dealer, Rotas is the security firm, Opera is the opening of the film, and then Tenet is the organization. It's a real genius piece of uh, writing, the the Sator square. It's pretty amazing that someone could come up with it. And then another uh, fun fact is um, George Tenet, was the head of the CIA at the time of 9-11, and there's this wild conspiracy theory that the CIA was developing a time machine to stop 9-11 from happening, happening. and it's just pretty wild that his last name was Tennant. And I think, uh, I think I don't think Nolan maybe believes it, but I think he's just kind of feeding the fire of that conspiracy theory. I think that's just a reach, and then, in my opinion. <laughs> it's just a wild coincidence, though, yeah. if you think about it. Yeah. And then, so these turnstiles appear throughout the film in different locations throughout the world. So who built these turnstiles? Sater built these turnstiles. He used them around the world to find the artifacts and invert materials. And again, red versus blue, which is the red is forwards timeline and blue is backwards inverted timeline. And this is very apparent during the interrogation turnstile room about halfway through the film. This film was also... It's also Chris Nolan's most criticized film. It's his lowest rating on Rotten Tomatoes at 71, just below Interstellar at 72. It also scored only a 69 on Metacritic, whereas Dunkirk scored a 93 and 94, respectively. And I think it's because for a lot of people, it's it's his most confusing film for sure. There's obviously the criticism of there's too much overly expository dialogue. So I think people are just kind of half they're watching a scene and they're like, is this reading a book or watching a movie at the same time? Um, again, don't try to understand it if you're having trouble understanding it. I know a lot of people just have, listen to our podcast. Yeah, <laughs> I know a lot of people have trouble with the sound mix. They're saying that they can't see, hear the dialogue, or understand it. But again, Chris Nolan is a master filmmaker. He's he's doing this on purpose. It's the way he wants it to sound. He wants it to sound like you're there, like you're realistic, like like the helicopter is right in the room with you, which is why you shouldn't be able to hear things. That's what I think personally. So I don't have a problem with the sound mix. If you don't hear a line of dialogue, too bad you weren't listening. Just try to pay attention more. Yeah, he doesn't like to dub over dialogue at all. And it, like you said, it brings you in the moment. Like if you're on the boat. In the scene, it sounds like you're on the boat. It's not perfect dialogue with just like a, a very faint a very faint sound of the boat. It feels like you're really there. But I do understand why a lot of people, they're not as intense film goers as us. And so they're not uh, expecting that. And so I'm sure for pe- a lot of people when they saw this movie, they were like, what are they saying? So I can understand that. But also, it's it's not a mistake. It's actually, it is how he intended it. And it's no mystery that Hans Zimmer did not score this film. It's the first time that Hans Zimmer hasn't scored a Chris Nolan movie since The Prestige. They've worked together on every film that Chris Nolan's made ever since. And this is because it's not because of like a, a falling out a falling out or anything like that. It's because Hans Zimmer turned down Tenet to make 
Dune, which is a passion project of him, which you can obviously, if you've read the books and know the story, I'm sure that Hans Zimmer's been a fan of this material for a long time. Yeah, he said that uh, he grew up reading Dune, and it was his favorite book as a kid, and so uh, obviously the uh, the opportunity to, to score Denis Villeneuve's new film of Dune was probably a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that he's been probably waiting for for a long time. And so I can understand why he, he passed on this one. But I think Ludwig Gorenson did a phenomenal job with this movie. His score is so fantastic. He They really applied the idea of inversion into the music itself. So anytime uh, the scenes take place with the, the lead character inverted, the score itself is actually reversed, and it sounds fantastic. It's one of my favorite scores to listen to at the moment, and he absolutely knocked it out of the park. And I, I can't imagine anyone doing a better job. Yeah, he's an incredibly talented guy. I know everyone is kind of, they can't get over the fact that Hans Zimmer didn't do the music. We get it. It's no it's not a big deal. It's it's unfortunate, yeah, but Ludwig is a very talented guy. He won an Oscar for Black Panther. So I love his score for this film, even though a lot of people dislike it. But I just, I'm just telling you, just like the film, you got to give it a chance. Don't try to overanalyze it too much because the the sound and the the, the music he, he makes, it, it just amplifies this idea of going backwards because a lot of it sounds like music that I'm sure that he reversed at some point during the production and it's just it just adds so much to the story and again when they reverse the music during the film it's a really cool sound effect really interesting fact too is because obviously uh, the post-production of this film was affected by coronavirus and so this was like the first ever major studio film um, that still had that had most of the score recorded remotely so all the musicians recorded uh, in their own homes and sent Ludwig their uh, their their music and that had never really been done before with this size of a of a movie. I think before we start talking about the plot, uh, we should mention a couple of the spoilers and a couple of the more confusing elements and reveals of the film. That way, as we discuss the plot, it will make a little bit more sense rather than revealing all the twists at the end I of agree. our discussion. So the first one I want to talk about is Neil as a character, Robert Pattinson's character, and. Uh, when we first meet Neil, it seems as though uh, protagonist is meeting him for the very first time, but that, in fact, is not true at all. Uh, the, the truth of the matter is that Neil has known protagonist for years, and protagonist actually recruits Neil in the future, and he uh, he trains Neil in the in the uh, art of inversion, and he instructs Neil to carry out this mission that takes place throughout the course of the film. And then, obviously, when you know by the end of the film, uh, that that uh, mysterious person who always has that red string uh, hanging, dangling from his backpack, uh, all those are instances of Neil helping out the protagonist. And uh, Neil has been assigned this duty by the protagonist. Exactly. So the first time that they meet in the film is in Mumbai. And for protagonist and his timeline of moving forward, this is his first time ever meeting Neil. But since Neil's timeline is backwards, he's inverted. So Neil is inverted and he's met and known protagonist for years. They've had a friendship for years. This is revealed at the end of the film, obviously. That's why he knows that uh, protagonist doesn't like to drink on the job. He, he, or he drinks him, Diet Coke. He orders him a Diet Coke. So there's always these things, these little bits of information that Neil seems to be holding back. And the first time you watch this movie, you're like, who does he work for? Are they working for the same organization? Or is he, he seems to know things that protagonist doesn't know. That, that's because he does. And when we say he's inverted, it is, he's not moving backwards right now. What he's been doing is he has been using the turnstile machines to invert himself and travel back in time. And then he's reverting himself to move forward and, to interact in these scenes with protagonists. And so he has been traveling through time 
into the past to set the stage for the events that carry out this film. And then the next big reveal about Neil is uh, Neil is actually Cat's son, Max. So Cat and Mater, Cat and Stater, they have that young son named Max, um, who sh- she is estranged from and only allowed to visit when he exits school on his way to the to his driver. And this young boy is actually a, a childhood version of Neil. I think it's pretty obvious because he looks like his mother. He has a similar hairstyle, a same Pattinson color. Pattinson dyed his hair for this particular movie for this role. He speaks in that like high society English accent, which is not his natural accent, which sounds just like Cat's characters. Um, and he also speaks Estonian, which his father, Sater, can do. Yeah, so he's bilingual. And he has a master's in physics, which is obviously something that the protagonist, if he recruited him, would have had him follow footsteps into. And then, obviously, the end of the film, it ends. We, we've all seen it where the protagonist is watching Max and Cat walking away. And you can assume that Max got a, I mean, you can assume that protagonist gets out of the car and starts his relationship. And this is where the next, probably the most important reveal of the entire film is that protagonist actually is the person that started Tenet. And so, back to this idea of temporal pincers... This entire movie, the entire story is a temporal pincer. And Mac, I mean, Neil says it at the end of the film. He says the whole thing is a temporal pincer by you because Tenet, I mean, because Tenet is created by a protagonist in the future, which he uses to invert back in time with Neil. And so protagonist is the one who created this mission to stop Sater from accomplishing his goal. And the events of this film are just like the first step and him creating the organization in, in, uh, of Tenet because uh, Priya, the arms dealer, tells protagonist early in the film that Tenet was not created in the past, but Tenet was created, will be created in the future. But we don't know who created it. And then by the end of the film, we learn that protagonist is the one who created the, the organization of Tenet. He trained Neil. Uh, and as Neil grew into adulthood, he had him uh, study physics and then trained him for this task and put him in all the right places and be, just like how Sater is able to uh, see into the future and and predict the outcomes of things and and change and, and adapt to what happens, uh, protagonist does the same thing. We don't see it, but he'll, he'll he will do the same thing like twenty years from now, where because he lived these events, he knows what Neil has to do to help him out. And another wild reveal is that the opening scene of this film, the Kiev opera scene takes place at the exact same time as two other main events in the film, at, which occur at the end of the film, which is the battle at the end at Stalsk 12, and also Cat um, killing Seder on the yacht. These All three of these events occur at the exact same time. And this is actually hinted pretty early in the film when protagonist eats dinner with Michael Caine, who's, who plays Sir Michael, obviously. <laughs> uh, it's a reach for a character name, yeah. Chris. Um, I bet it's because he always wanted it's, it's to be a joke. Yeah, yeah that he never joke. got knighted. Yet. He's knighted. Is he knighted? Yeah. Oh, never mind. I That's know. the joke that he's knighted. Gotcha. So Sir Michael <laughs> reveals to, well, because protagonist is sitting down with Sir Michael to try to figure out how to get in contact with Sater and try to exploit him or try to reach him as like a, an agent or undercover in a way. And then um, Sir Michael explains to him that the way to access him is through the wife, but also that they've detected a detonation at the same time as the Kiev opera bombing and explosion. So that means that and the explosion took place at Stalsk 12, which is where Seder wants to bury 
his, like we said earlier, it's where Seder wants to bury the algorithm using an explosion to bury all, all of the items. So basically, this scene tells you that at the very end of the film and the very beginning of the film take place at the exact same time. The explosion at the end, which buries the algorithm or which they pulled the algorithm out, the explosion at the end occurs at the exact same time as the Kiev Opera. Again, how is this possible? Because of inversion. And again, when I say that every time you invert yourself, there's three other parts, there's three versions of yourself. Neil, there are about six versions of himself, I think, in the timelines match around because at the same time, at the beginning of the movie, he's at the opera house in Kiev. He's in two different places during the battle. He's a child on the yacht and he's somewhere else at the same time too. So I think there are six versions of Neil going out at the same time as this scene and bouncing around throughout the timeline of the film. It's a lot to get your head around, but when you when you understand it and, and think about it and especially watch this film on repeat viewings, uh, it, it simplifies the ideas in the in the story itself, and uh, it's actually very easy to understand once you get the, around the the complexities of it. Someone's gonna be like, "Oh, you called that easy to understand?" <laughs> and then also uh, another great hint that Neil is Max is um, uh, the the French full length spelling of Maximilian, which would be his full name, uh, ends with an L I E N. Now, if you invert those last four letters of Maximilian. You get N E I L, which spells Neil. How y'all doing so far? <laughs> I think we should uh, delve into the plot. Let's get into the film. And so this again opens up at the opera. And obviously, every time I go to the movie theater to see a Chris Nolan movie for the first time, and I'm in the theater waiting for the opening scene to start, and I'm just like, it's like Christmas morning, jacked up on the dial to a hundred, and I'm so excited. I'm curious. I'm eager to see this film. And as soon as I see the Warner Brothers logo and the Sin Copy logo and then how he uniquely uh, blends those with the themes of the film. And and then we have a wild opening scene. It's, it's a lot similar to, I would say, The Dark Knight Rises. It's just pure action. But also, whenever I'm watching an opening scene for a Chris Nolan film, I'm trying to like pay attention to what's really going on because he's trying to tell you a lot of things at the same time in his opening scenes, which he really does. He, he went back to the ideas of um, how to open a film, like you said, with an action set piece which he did with both Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises, Dark Knight with the robbery. And I think it's a great way to open a movie. Like we just watched The Matrix and they, they did the same thing with the Trinity opening action set piece. And this really sets up the tone of the film. Uh, it's a great action scene. It's very loud and bombastic. Uh, Ludwig combined this great electronic score with the big drums that Nolan movies are synonymous for. And it's so action-packed and... I, it, it gets my 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 heart rate going. I get amped up when I watch this scene. And essentially, what's happening in the scene is that uh, protagonist is working, like we said earlier, uh, in part of a, a CIA uh, squad, and they are tasked with uh, evacuating a CIA undercover agent from within the opera that they know is going to be the victim of this attack. This attack is carried out by private Russians who are there to uh, get the CIA agent and the package that he has at the opera. And they're using an explosion that's they're using a series of explosions that will be detonated in the opera as a distraction for their real purpose of the CIA agent in the package he has. Yeah, and so these soldiers who who hijack and hold hostage this opera hall are are working for Seder. And protagonist is also part of his team and mission is to secure the package that the man in the in the box office up top has um, down in his his luggage or, or his coat rack coat rack yeah and so nolan's telling you a few things with the scene he's showing you um obviously in text intense action 
and opposing forces of each other. But also he's showing you a little glimpse at this inversion technique where we see a bullet being pulled backwards and caught in a gun through wood and, and through a seat. And, and through a person. Yeah, and so it, it kills somebody. And, and this is, again, this is Neil saving protagonists. Again, so, yeah, you see the, the, tag. Back, the backpack with that red string tag. So this is Neil right here saving the protagonist with... Not, he's not shooting that person, but he's inverting the bullet, just how protagonist does later in the next scene. And again, try to grasp that at the same exact time that this is going on, that yacht scene is going on, and then also the battle at the end of the movie is going on at the same time as the situation. Exactly. And so again, this is what we mean by, although there's all this, not exactly time travel, but inversion traveling between all these characters, it's all one giant predetermined loop, and it's all, again, one pincer. Exactly. And so even though Neil is here at this moment in time, it's not like he's duplicated himself. He's just traveling through the timeline at different points to affect and be involved in each situation. So it's not that he's like, there's a bunch of Neils. It, technically there are, but it's all one stream that is uh, inter interacting with each set on his own. And so while the protagonist is here trying to stop the bombs from detonating he's trying to gather them he uh he finds in the package there is this strange uh device it's this uh, cube-like structure and they they end up calling it the artifact uh, but this is the ninth piece of the algorithm which satyr is trying to get his hands on so protagonist actually ends up getting captured by satyr's men in this scene and then there's that great shot and little scene of him in between those two trains with the other guy he was working with where he um, it manages to take a cyanide capsule to try and kill himself so he doesn't reveal inf any information. And it's I love the shots because it shows these trains moving forwards and backwards. And I think Chris Nolan does this on purpose. Obviously, he wants to make it very loud and it's a good place to kill somebody if you're going to kill somebody in between these two uh, long tow trains. But also, it's almost like what's backwards and what's forwards. Which one's going forwards? Which one's the theme of the movie. Forward? Obviously, yeah. yeah, so we don't really know. But obviously, it's two timelines. Yeah, we can assume that they're both going in forwards direction because the scene we haven't been inverted yet but it's still fun to just look at that shot and look at that scene with those two trains yeah i think that's what chris is trying to do i think so too and then um protagonist wakes up because taking the cyanide capsule didn't kill him but it was a test to get into tenant and now he's been recruited slash promoted into this very mysterious organization called tenant and the man that is giving him the information doesn't even have full clearance or knowledge of the organization itself it's more that he's given Ten, he gives protagonists just a word, the word of Tenet. And he also hints that uh, the entire uh, plane of existence and the survival of, of the world is at stake. And he sends uh, protagonists off to use the word Tenet to, to open the right doors, he says. And so uh, after spending time uh, hanging out in a, in a windmill, just like working out and, and doing some chin-ups, getting ready, getting ready, uh, protagonists... Uh, um, hits the mainland and he uh, encounters uh, a scientist named Barbara. And also, this windmill scene is really important because they go back to these windmills towards the end of the film when they're traveling back to the battle. And this is, it's a great reference of palindromes for characters because he's traveling away from these windmills, which can maybe be a place marker for his character, only to travel backwards to them again. So he's never really gaining or losing time in a way. And then this scene with the scientist Barbara is, I would say, the the, the heaviest uh, piece of exposition we get because we're learning the idea of inversion, which, which we talked about extensively earlier, so we don't really have to repeat it. But 
Barber shows them examples of inversion in terms of uh, catching the bullet with the pistol and then being able to move the bullet uh, with intuition and then also being able to, to essentially catch items out of those drawers, which he actually is dropping, but the items are inverted, so they're moving re in reverse. And so we're getting an idea and a feel for the concept of inversion because if you don't get it now, you're going to be confused for the rest of the movie because you're going to see a whole lot more inversion. Yeah, again, it's not that he has to drop the bullet. He doesn't have to drop the bullet to want to drop the bullet and to eventually drop the bullet to catch the bullet in reverse because it's his it's his destination to drop that bullet, but he doesn't he will, have he to will, show it. He will always drop the bullet. That's why he can catch it yeah. in reverse. Yeah, he's not making it happen. So this I, this whole movie, inversion, it, it reverses the idea of cause and effect. And so you have cause and effect, but when you're inverted effect comes before cause yeah so it, that's why they don't show it the bullet falling then coming back it's because yeah. it's already technically happened in his timeline it's just you don't see it yeah i'm trying yeah i think i think they're trying to get i think they're understanding I think now. you guys good i'm trying my you best good i think i think they got it okay I think let's, so move, let's assume they got it yeah <laughs> i don't got it i'm kidding i, I think i got it i've <laughs> <laughs> been reading reading word for word the whole time what are you talking about <laughs> And now uh, these bullets, Barbara doesn't know where exactly they came from. That's what she's trying to figure out. And um, because they didn't invert them, they found them already inverted. And, and so protagonist takes the bullets and he traces them to an Indian arms dealer named Priya, who is uh, working under the guise of her husband, where she actually is the one who is the uh, prominent arms dealer in Asia. Yeah, and this is where he meets Neil, who is technically recruited for him, so he thinks. He doesn't realize that. Obviously, he's the one that recruited Neil for this mission. And they run this mission to infiltrate Priya's home, where they learn of Seder. And it, this is really cool scene of, like, this reverse bungee jump yeah. into the... Inversion. Into, yeah, <laughs> this inversion bungee jump into the apartment up top. It's, it's really cool. Yeah. And um, I remember the trailer. I'm like, what are they doing? <laughs> it's so curious. It's all practical effects, guys. Yeah. This whole film is practical effects. This mostly. movie only has 290 visual effects shots. That's that's less than like the average comedy film. Exactly. A, a, a typical big budget like Marvel movie will have uh, thousands of special effects shots. This movie has 290. So uh, Nolan also used no green screens at all in this movie. Not a single green screen was used for the production of Tenet. I just like got so like excited hearing that, <laughs> and so again, this is where uh, protagonist learns of Seder, and Priya reveals that Seder ha must have somehow inverted the bullets, and um, that's why they're inverted. She didn't do it; the inversion, she just sold them to him, and he inverted them. And she explains that he can communicate with the future. She doesn't know how, but it's up to him to find out. Exactly. And now, in order to get to Seder, protagonist needs to find a connection in. in this is what leads him to Sir Michael Crosby, played by Michael Caine. Michael Caine. I'm, I'm Michael Caine. I won't, I won't bury watch, another won't Batman. Bury another Batman. And uh, I mean, what? <laughs> what? How is there a Christopher? No what Christopher Nolan movie doesn't have Michael Caine? I mean, it feels it's become a a necessity in a Nolan movie to have Caine in in some way. He's got to roll somehow. Somehow. And, um, and for those of you who don't know, Michael Caine was a rock star in like the '60s and '70s. This he was, guy was massive. He was an icon. Um, and he is. He's easily one of the best actors ever. He's so good, and obviously he only has like three minutes in this movie, but he crushes it. He's great. He He's able to be uh, humorous uh, and confident and also informative. Um, and he's just so good in everything he's ever done, and uh, I think that Chris Nolan obviously, I think he's like a good luck charm for Nolan now. I think he's just probably Michael Caine's biggest fan since uh, he was a kid, which is why yeah. he probably puts him in all his movies. It's true. That's probably right. Now, uh, this scene is important because Crosby 
like we said earlier, tells protagonists that there was uh, a, an explosion detected, a detonation detected at Stocks 12, which is the location of the finale battle, which happened at the same time as the opera uh, siege. And so this is the first hint that uh, we know of actually the mission was a success. I think that Michael Crosby here is just like just lounging about, chilling because he knows like, oh, we won. It's all good. Now all I got to do is tell you to see Seder and then my job's done. We saved the world. You think he knows everything about it? I don't yeah, know. Yeah. Well, he doesn't know how it all happened, but he knows it was a success. Yeah. He knows they saved the world. So now all Crosby has to do is, is point uh, protagonists in the right direction and protagonists will take it from there. So Crosby's just chilling. The people of the future are dealing with this grandfather paradox where, again, the theory is obviously that if you destroy your past, are you going to be around for the future? So if you go back in time and kill your grandfather, how can you have been born to go back in time and kill your grandfather? There's really no way to find out. And it's kind of like a leap of faith that it doesn't matter if you go back in time and kill your grandfather, that, that you'll still exist. So it's it's like a leap of faith that these people in the future are taking. And they're taking this leap of faith because the the future is so horrible that they're trying their last ditch effort to save themselves by killing the, the past. And now when I say earlier that Michael Crosby knows that they are successful, what their plan was is they their plan is to uh, take away the algorithm from that that cave they're going to bury it that Sater's going to bury it within with the explosion and the plan is to uh, take the algorithm out but still let the explosion take place think making Sater believe that he successfully buried the algorithm for the people in the future to find when in fact Crosby knows that they successfully got the algorithm out of there and allowed Sater to still set off his detonation. So at this point, uh, Crosby knows that they won, but they still have to carry out the events which led to the success in the opening scene. And so he needs to point protagonists in the direction of Sater in order to carry out his entire storyline. That might be why he's so confident eating that delicious. Yeah, he looking, looks like nothing's yeah, wrong. Like, yeah, no big deal, no big <laughs> deal. He's just eating like the most delicious looking burger and fries and the heirloom tomatoes right there on the plate. I want that meal every time I see this movie. I'm like, oh, it looks so good, and I'm so I'm so mad that protagonist didn't sit down and eat his. I think that Chris Nolan is uh, making is poking fun at high society with the scene because um, first protagonist tells the major d to put the order in for him and the major d is like i'll get the i'll get your waiter to take your order and then protagonist is like no just send on the message so he's making the major d take the order and then next he asks them to box up his meal and the major d says absolutely not you can't box anything up this you know where you are and so i think he's making fun of a high society and how they they are so smug they won't even box up food to go yeah you're probably right i think so too yeah and so this leads to protagonist next going to meet cat which is where michael crosby sir michael crosby led him to to get close to Sater, he has to get close to cat and so rumor has it as michael crosby told them is that cat uh, is an art dealer and she accidentally sold Sater, her husband a forged goya painting goya is a, a famous french artist and um this painting was a forgery and she sold it to Sater for nine million dollars thinking it was real and after he discovered that it was a fake, he's now using that as blackmail against her to keep her against her will in the marriage. And so now uh, Crosby revealed uh, her her his way into Seder. Through this dinner that 
protagonist and Kat have. We learn that Kat, again, is under this blackmail from Seder. And we also learn of this mystery woman who she saw jump from his yacht on a vacation in Vietnam. A week before. Yeah, which again was at the same exact time as the Kiev Opera and the detonation that Sir Michael Crosby tells him about that happened at Stalsk 12. And this made her feel jealous, not of another woman in his life, but of her freedom because she just jumped freely from this yacht. But again, this is actually her future self inverted back in time, reverted in time, successfully carrying out this mission to... She's supposed to, at the end of the film, stall Seder, but eventually kills Seder. Yeah, so the woman that she sees jumping from the yacht in her vacation with him the week previous, that was actually herself. And we'll find out how she gets there eventually. This has put a strain, an even bigger strain on the relationship between her and Seder. And protagonist comes up with this idea where if he can get a hold of the painting, the forged painting that she sold Seder, then it would free her and absolve her of uh, any hold he has on her. He and Neil will next come up with the plan of trying to steal this forgery from the Freeport in Oslo. Yeah, so also another thing that happens at that dinner is this epic fight scene in the back oh, where, yeah. where we finally get to see protagonist mess a bunch of dudes up and it's so awesome, it's so badass and like it's kind of gnarly with like the cheese grater and everything but we really learn from this this scene that protagonist is a highly trained individual that you don't want to cross and this guy's on a mission and he'll do anything to accomplish his goals. And John David Washington showed up his uh, athleticism in this scene for sure. And protagonist learns from Kat that the real art is at a free port, which is an art vault at the Oslo airport. And so this is where uh, legal artifacts, legal pieces of art or valuable items are, are, are held in security, secure vaults. This entire structure is located within the center of an airport. And uh, this is a place where people store art so they don't have to pay taxes on it because technically it's not on the state grounds. And so this is kind of a, a loophole, kind of like a Swiss army account, a Swiss bank account, uh, keeping your money in there so you don't have to pay taxes on it. And this is what obviously art collectors uh, will do for their pieces. And uh, Neil and protagonist have the dilemma of, of how do they uh, steal this piece of art uh, from this uh, high security facility in the middle of an airport. We get some of uh, Robert Pattinson's best deliveries where he's explaining his idea of crashing a 747 right into the building itself and 747 is a palindrome palindrome and they actually crashed a 747 into a building they actually did this and i think chris nolan said that it was actually more cost efficient to actually do this rather than do it with uh post-production special effects yeah so they bought the plane and then they built that that building and then they just drove the plane right into it and it actually makes sense because the plane itself is used in several scenes, so it would it makes sense that it's it essentially crashing the plane into the building creates the set for the future scenes. There's also some really interesting aspects to this vault where instead of a sprinkler system occurring during a fire, they they uh, vacuum basically all the air out of the room to instantly put out any kind of fire because um, fire can't burn without oxygen. Yeah, because so Neil goes in there as a prospect um, Deal- customer uh, or a person of who has art to store to learn all the defenses and weaknesses of this vault. And I really love this, this entire sequence. It's, it's a great sequence. Uh, first they infiltrate the, the free port itself and, and then um, their partner who they uh, 
tasked with helping them out. He uh, takes the control of the plane itself. And the plan is this particular plane is transporting a great amount of gold. And so they blow open the back of the plane as they're hijacking it. And they, they spill the gold out so that would distract authorities um, from the, the actual crash of the plane. And a, as they take this plane, they they crash it into the building, like we said earlier. And when this happens, the alarm system goes off within the actual uh, storage rooms. And Neil and protagonist are abandoned by the by the employee. And they're stuck in this room without any air in it anymore. Yeah, so they're pretending like they're about to store some actual art, which they're not. And once the person leaves and once the air comes out, they start to work their way to the more secure vaults. And this By is, picking the locks yeah, of each door. And holding their breath for as long as they can, <laughs> except for in the hallways where they're safe. And this is where they stumble across this inversion turnstile machine. This is the first one that... Um, protagonist has seen i'm sure neil has seen many of these obviously mm -hmm. but he kind of acts like what happened here well neil doesn't actually seem curious about the machine he's, he's more, more about the event the bullet holes yeah. so he's actually curious about the bullet holes in the in the glass because he's clearly been through plenty of these but this is the first time protagonist has seen one of these and he's starting to understand that these bullet holes are it's something that's happened already or it hasn't happened yet because these bullet holes are starting to get fresher and fresher they're starting to be gun smoke in the air in front of them and eventually the turnstile turns in front of them and a man pops out in full SWAT gear with a gas mask on a SWAT person comes out on both sides the 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 one on Neil's side is uh going forward in time and now this SWAT person on on protagonist side is inverted but again we since we've already spoiled so much of it this is all both of these men are protagonists they're different versions remember i said when you invert yourself there's going to be three total versions of yourself around the timeline this is an inverted and reverted version of himself coming through both sides of this turnstile yeah and so uh, the way this works is we'll find out eventually is that the protagonist side that swat protagonist is the is actually the first one and he's inverted moving through the room fighting protagonist he enters the the turnstile and then he'll be reverted and he escapes um, past Neil eventually. But right now in this part of the scene, uh, from this point of view, uh, protagonist has to fight this inverted version of himself. Yeah, and there's some a few key things that happen there in this fight. Obviously, it's this incredible sequence of someone in normal forwards time fighting someone that's moving backwards, which is so cool to see. But also there's this important stab wound that he gets on his arm mm -hmm. when he stabs the uh, the goggled version of himself, the yeah. inverted version of himself. And then also this crazy thing happens to the inverted version of himself in the hallway where he kind of gets sucked through yeah. this, uh, this uh, garage door yeah. towards the explosion of the airplane. We think it's an explosion that causes it. And then Neil's version chases down the reverted version of this person, this reverted version of the protagonist, and pulls his mask off. Nolan doesn't show who it is yet, but Neil reacts oddly and just lets this person go. And I think we both I guessed guess, that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, oh, I know you did. I know I did too. Yeah. I think I think a lot of people probably guessed that it was probably a protagonist. If you know how Chris Nolan works, you kind of can have an understanding for what he would do. And that's definitely a situation where I think it was fairly obvious that it was protagonist under the mask. Because why else would Neil let him go? So yeah, I think it's easy to assume right there that it's either a different version of protagonist or Neil himself. And so next, Cat brings the protagonist to to meet Sater, and um, they're vacationing off the Amalfi Coast on their gigantic yacht. The size of this yacht is insane. I think, I think it's they six had stories. A, I think they had an insurance policy of a hundred million dollars on the yacht. I believe it. And um, we we learn that Sater is just a a ruthless villain, and um, 
we, there's this scene where we can see that he really is holding Kat against her will and controlling her entire life, and she really has uh, no way of escaping the situation. And he is very curious about this new American friend of hers, who she's saying is just a friend she met at a party last year. But he uh, he obviously is is onto this guy, and uh, she she invites him to their dinner later that night. And this is when protagonist finally meets Sater face to face, and Sater threatens him by saying he's going to slice his throat vertically and then shove his um, gonads in his throat and then watch him choke on it while trying to pull it out, which is pretty intense, I'm sure. It's a it nice so- greeting. It sounds like he's done it a lot of times, the way he talks about <laughs> it so casually and so like much like he's going to enjoy it. Protagonist very smartly says, do you like opera? So this is a sign that he knows about the opera. He knows Sater was involved in this. And Sater tells him to meet them on the dock at 8 a.m. in the morning. And the next morning, we learn that the forged piece of art was never damaged in that explosion because uh, when Kat has breakfast and she opens the the lid from her plate, uh, Sater has placed the, the forged drawing there, revealing that somehow he knew to take the painting out of the, the Freeport before the attack happened. And obviously, as we come to learn, he knew to do this because he knew the events that would carry out at the Freeport, and so he inverted himself and took the painting out of there before protagonist Neil ever made it there. And so he still has the the blackmail grip on her. And they have this wild scene where they go on these crazy bolts. I don't even know what you would Some call Some kind them. of craft. I can't remember yeah. what it's called. Yeah, and it's, it's obviously very uh, upper-class athletic, athletic activity. <laughs> Some weird vacation thing that I'm sure costs a lot of money. And here, Kat, Kat tries to kill Sater, um, while at the same time, protagonist is trying to do business with Sater and try to get a job with him to do work. And uh, protagonist saves Sater's life, and this leads to Kat being obviously very upset that she was trying to escape this horrible relationship by killing Sater. But protagonist can't really explain why he had to save Sater yet to Kat. And then protagonist meets with Sater, and then, and then Sater tells him that story about him as a, as a teenager in uh, Stalks 12, um, finding that plutonium in the gold. And also, protagonist is trying to get a job stealing whatever Sater wants in payment of with plutonium, which is a cover. Yeah, so pro- protagonist offers to help Sater retrieve a, t- a case that Sater wants um, which he says contains plutonium, but a protagonist thinks it contains something else entirely. And so they make this deal under the guise that protagonist is also an arms dealer who's trying to make business with with Seder, where, in fact, he's trying to figure out what Seder wants to do with the next in his plan. And protagonist later on witnesses uh, some unsavory events of these gold bars, which he actually talks his way out of once he gets discovered spying on Seder and his activities. And um, he manages to sneak out of it and gets the gold bars payment for resources for the mission. And then we have this epic heist scene um, on the highway chase, which is this is, again, protagonist stealing this um, briefcase or this this item for Seder. That's the plan. But really, he's not going to give it to Seder. But I think it seems like Seder knows this because this is the first example that we see as an audience member knowingly of a temporal pincer. It's a great heist because you never see anything like it, a heist happening while in motion on the freeway. And they do this by surrounding the armored car with several large vehicles, trap it in place and prevent it from moving out of the, out of the way while, while protagonist uh, breaks into it and takes the case away. 
And now the second instance of protagonist dealing with an inverted enemy, and this time it is uh, Seder's men inverted with their cars, which are driving in reverse, and we get this amazing, fantastic car chase of uh, cars moving forward and cars moving in inversion. Which and are, Seder himself, too. And Seder himself inverted, and the way that Christopher Nolan filmed uh, inverted scenes for the, especially a lot of the action set pieces involving the cars is they actually actually retrofitted their cameras to uh, project the film in reverse. And so they actually recorded this with IMAX film in reverse in camera, which had never been done before. And then they played it back normally, which showed these cars actually moving in reverse. A lot of them, they're not actually, uh, most of them aren't driving in reverse. They're actually driving forward, but they recorded it in reverse. It's yeah. very confusing, but it's a practical way to film it. Yeah, he filmed all the scenes that involve inversion twice. He filmed them in tw two different ways, forwards and reverse, so that it actually looks realistic that mm -hmm. it was reversed in, in the movie. Yeah. And then as, they, as they're driving, they're attacked by Sater's men, and protagonist is forced to give up the case in, in the face of Sater killing Cat. And so uh, he tosses the case out the window, which bounces on a car in between them, and Sater catches, but uh, hidden in that motion, uh, protagonist, we don't see it right here yet, but protagonist actually took the artifact out of the case, and he threw it into the car beside them because he recognized that he saw himself in the car. Yeah, because he is driving that other car in between the two vehicles because he saw himself in it, and this is a future inverted version of himself so this is a future version of him that's gone backwards yeah. protagonist saves cat from her car which is out of control and which is going to crash but after he saves her um they are attacked by satyr's men and neil trying to fend themselves he calls in the cavalry. he says and protagonist is like what cavalry? what are you talking about and we'll find out eventually that there's a whole entire uh, army unit a military unit which tenet employs um which will save them in the future but for now uh, protagonist is taken captive by Sater's men, and which leads to a very intense interrogation scene where where Sater inverts himself and interrogates the protagonist who is still uh, reverted moving forward. And it's a great case where uh, they speak to each other each other through these glass windows, which are when they speak, it's in reverse to one another, but then the speaker uh, uh, reverts their dialogue so we can hear it in real time. And again, Nolan shows this with blue for inverted and then red is the current forwards timeline. And this also shows Seder inflicting a inverted bullet wound on Cat on the other side in the inversion chamber of this turnstile room. In this interrogation, protagonist reveals that he left the artifact in the, the glove compartment of the BMW he was driving, which was a lie. And so hearing this news, Seder leaves to go get the case from that BMW. So he's inverted, Sater is inverted, and he's traveling back to the scene of the car chase crash to find that BMW. And while this is happening, uh, protagonist is saved by uh, Neil and Ives and their team of special forces operatives who are part of the tenant organization. And Ives, I, I before we walked into this movie, I told you there's gonna be a surprise casting in this movie. Someone's gonna show up halfway through this movie and it's going to be like, oh, shit. 
And look who it is. Aaron Taylor Johnson plays Ives, who was not marketed, was not in the trailers, is not credited on any of the marketing campaigns. Absolutely fantastic actor. He just shows up out of nowhere, and I love it. Super underrated talent. I love that guy in every single thing he's in. He's Even as Quicksilver in, he's in, fantastic. in The Avengers. He's so cool. Yeah. And this also is an important scene for protagonists because he's starting to get really suspicious because Neil knows information that he doesn't know. And then this guy, Ives, he has no idea who these people are. And this is where he learns through Ives and Neil about this organization, Tenet, a little bit. And he learns about this temporal pincer movement. He learns about inversion travel and forge travel. And this is, is where he decides that he's going to go inside this inversion turnstile, invert himself go backwards to help save Cat, who's been shot with this inversion gunshot wound, which is basically a death sentence unless you go back into inversion time. And then him, Neil, and Cat just basically go into this inverted timeline. This is where they start to travel backwards. It's a great moment when um, they've been inverted and then protagonist walks out into the real world for the first time in reverse, and he's wearing the mask and... It's just, uh, I, I got goosebumps when this moment happened because you've been waiting for this the entire film. When's he going to go into inversion? And when he steps outside, there's a bird flying backwards. There's fl there's gas flowing in reverse. He steps on a puddle and it, and it splashed before he even stepped on it. It's a fantastic moment. And a lot of this stuff that you see inverted with people walking or people running even at the end of the film, they actually film the actor's uh, running backwards, making it seem as though they were running forward. So they're actually uh, a lot of uh, uh, camera trickery and, and very simple uh, reverse choreography to make us think that they're moving backwards. And this is an example where John David Washington was actually uh, performing this scene by walking backwards, and then they just reversed the footage to make it look like he was walking forwards. And now he knows that he lied to Sater, telling him that the, that the um, artifact was in the glove box knowing that he realistically threw it into the other car. So he knows he has a chance to find the artifact if uh, he can get there before Seder. And actually, just to go back for a second, Kenneth Branagh even learned his dialogue in reverse for the scene of him in the blue chamber of the turnstile room so that he spoke it in reverse in with that accent still. So that's the Russian how, accent. That's how talented of an actor he is. Crazy. And it's so interesting and fun to watch uh, protagonists try to figure out how to drive in inversion world. Yeah, because like, well, catching a bullet is one thing, but to drive a car must be extremely complicated. But he's, he eventually gets the hang of it, and he's on the highway. And this is also where we learn that he's the one that flipped the car on the highway and created that 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 car crash because that's actually him. And um, even though the artifact comes into his room, into his window, he flips his car. Seder gets the artifact and then lights him on fire. But because we're in, in inversion time in Chris Nolan's world, I don't think this is scientifically accurate. Um, the fire turns to ice and he basically suffers from hypothermia, but eventually survives this explosion that turns into ice. I think it's something he must have thought that, that since the temperature is rising exponentially, it, it would drop exponentially. Yeah, I also think I that guess. Chris Nolan doesn't care too much about exact science, which yeah. is a little I mean, we're, The audience isn't filled with scientists, so it's not like they were questioning, like, that's not what would happen. After this scene, um, protagonist admits that he he brought the artifact right into Sater's hands, and he, he made a mistake, and it was his own fault, and he pretty much failed in this situation. And so um, they decide that... Um, they have to find another turnstile in order to revert, and so they decide to go back to the Freeport. And while they're traveling to the Freeport, um, they slowly heal Cat, who, because she's now inverted, her wound is able to be healed. Um, and they make it to the Freeport. And now 
we're going to carry out the same scenes that happened earlier, but from now, um, protagonist and Neil's perspective, now that they're dressed in SWAT gear, they're inverted. So again, we're going backwards in the timeline, back to that Oslo Freeport heist where the explosion. plane crashed. So we're going backwards in the timeline with the new inverted versions of them, which is why they're traveling inside the container with the oxygen tank around them. And now we find out that when earlier at the end of the fight between protagonist and that SWAT guy version of protagonist, um, the SWAT one was sucked under that, that under that door. And then we find out now that Neil and protagonist arrived just um, before the plane will crash. And so as as protagonist is approaching that doorway with the with the sliding door closed, the the plane which has been exploded is slowly inverting back to its um, health back to its uh, a normal self, and the engine is rebuilt and then turns on again, and then the engine of the airplane blows him into the room. So that's what happened. He didn't get sucked out of the room. He was blown into the into the room by the engine of the plane. Yeah, and this is where he has that fight. So now he carries out that fight earlier that he had earlier in the film when he was his normal forward self fighting an inversion version of himself and now he's an inverted version of himself fighting the forwards version of himself that he fought in the past and so this is where we get this interesting Still with again, us guys new perspective and the cool thing about these both of these fight scenes especially this one from his perspective it seems like he's winning this fight even though in the other perspective it seemed like he's losing the fight so it's kind of cool to see because he actually knows all the moves that are about to happen in a way exactly and he makes it all the way through this entire fight to the turnstile, which he goes inside. And the reason why um, they disappear, why he disappears is because he's already done it in his past. Yeah. So the inverted inverted part of himself, the inverted version entered the turnstile before he exited the turnstile. So that's why that happened first. And that's why they both appeared in the, op- in the first part. They both appeared at the same time. And when he exits the turnstile, he's now reverted moving forward. And he's able to escape Neil when Neil takes off his masks and realizes that it's actually protagonist. And while after this happens, he signals for Neil, and Neil pushes Cat through the turnstile, which is now um, empty. The protagonist and Neil aren't there anymore, and so they're able to re- revert themselves through the turnstile as well. And now they're all three of them are now back moving forward in time at this point in the in the story. So yeah, they're reverted after being inverted, traveling back in time. And Kat is pretty much fully healed. She has a scar on her her stomach now from the wound, but she's going to survive. And next up, Protagonist meets up with Priya again, who explains what the the artifacts are. They're part of the algorithm that Seder is assembling, which is capable of uh, catastrophically inverting uh, the plane of existence and destroying the history of, of mankind in order to maybe save the future. And this is a really important conversation because Protagonist is telling Priya, like, don't do this thing or don't or you should warn me about what's about to happen and she explains because what's happened this scene takes place a couple days before they initially meet in india when they bungee jumped off their house exactly so this happens before they meet and he's telling her to warn him and she's explaining to him that if i warn you then that will change the entire course of these events because again this is all all a predetermined loop and it's all one giant temporal pincer so she can't change the way it happens but she does agree to spare Cat and her son. Yeah. And next, Cat, the protagonist, and Neil uh, have to come up with a way of stopping Seder and also uh, preventing the nine pieces of the algorithm from being buried 
at Stalsk 12. And Kat determines that if Seder was going to kill himself, he would probably spend his final moments on the Vietnam vacation they went on uh, a week previous, which seemed to be the last time he was happy. Yeah, so it's where he kind of pretended to have that those original years of love for her and where they seem like a normal couple for a little bit. So she assumes that this is where it's going to happen. And so while she is taken to the yacht in Vietnam to meet up with Seder, protagonist and Neil meet up with Ives and the rest of their team where they're going to carry out an attack on Stalsk 12, the abandoned town. And they have two different teams to carry out this mission. They have a red team and a blue team. And the blue team has been inverted and will travel through the mission in reverse. And the red team is still in normal reverted forward time. And they're going to they're going to carry out the task in forward time. And they both have 10 minutes to carry out their task. Hence 10, 10, 10, 10 years twice backwards and forwards and 10. And the main goal, again, of this mission is to make sure that the it seems like the algorithm gets buried so that the past version of Seder believes that he will be successful. And the team needs to fail at stopping the detonation of the bomb from going off while the other team removes the algorithm from inside the tunnel where the time capsule is, again, making it seem as though it's been buried. So they want the bomb to go off. And what's important with the yacht scene is that uh, this future inverted version of Cat is meeting up with Seder, and Seder is also from the Seder from the future who inverted himself to this point in time because it's the last time he was happy, and he wants to relive this moment with her. He thinks that this cat is the cat from the past, when in reality, it's the cat that he shot in the future. And so he's unaware of what version of cat this is. And Cat's whole purpose of this plan is to stall Seder for as long as possible from killing himself so that they can accomplish this mission because, again, when he kills himself, that's the signal to the people of the future that he's completed his task of bearing the algorithm, the complete algorithm, which means the entire world in this present world and the past will end and be destroyed. And this climactic battle at Stalsk 12 was absolutely epic. It's gigantic, and the action is insane. And the set pieces and the filmmaking here is just on another level and the blend of the inverted action with the reverted action like a building exploding in reverse and then rebuilding itself and vice versa it's absolutely stunning display of visuals and it's such a a, an incredible set piece that you had never seen before and i know i think some people are still a little confused about how the whole uh, temporal pincer works in the scene specifically because there's so much going on there's so many actors so go to remember the scene where Ives, the red team, he's briefing them on uh, the mission. And he says this line, he says, an hour from now, the blue team will be having this briefing because, again, the blue team is moving backwards in time. So everything that they do, they've already experienced. So this is, again, why even though the red team starts their mission, we see the blue team's helicopter coming into the mission going backwards and in reverse. reverse and there's the already it's a the explosion is occurring when they're just getting there so again the blue team is going backwards in time during this entire mission and now the point of this is because since the blue team went first and then they get inverted they know what happens and so they're able to re relay their vital information to the red team which allows them to carry out their strategy when they attack the scene. But of course, there are some things that they don't under, they couldn't foresee, especially 
the in the tunnel when Ives and protagonists run down, they don't know that there's a trip wire, which is something that Neil sees. And so Neil in this scene, he has a very important timeline because halfway through his inversion timeline, he reverts himself. And so technically during this battle, there are two different uh, Neil's present. He even sees a, a inverted version of himself after he reverts, which is how he knows what's going to happen down in the tunnel. Exactly. And so first he tries to to warn Ives and protagonists about the tripwire in the tunnel. When he fails that, he goes back in a turnstile again. As Ives and protagonists make it through the tunnel, they find uh, a dead man right before the gate where the opposite side of the gate, there's a, a Russian member of Seder's crew who is getting prepared to to bury the the algorithm in a time capsule and also it's curious who is this dead person on the floor before them but it's important to note that it's a, a part of their team and he's wearing blue so he's and he's wearing blue so he's an inverted member of their squad exactly and again he's got that keychain that orange keychain is right there mm -hmm. and while this is happening Seder calls to speak with protagonist to pretty much taunt him as he's about to finish his his mission and bury the the time capsule and and blow up the the cave as Sater's man is about to bury the algorithm that dead corpse suddenly begins moving around and coming back to life and then this is happening as the 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 henchman is about to is about to shoot uh protagonist and this this former dead man's corpse stands up and jumps in front of the bullet where it reverts out of his skull and back into the henchman's gun and then uh, now that this 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 person is back to back to life, uh, revert inverted, and then protagonist is able to stop the henchman from burying the device while that former dead man escapes the cave. And also because the lock has been picked for the gate, so they can get through the gate. And so this is where they pull down the algorithm. And then fortunately, Neil is up top in the in the truck, and he manages to throw a rope down, and he pulls up Ives and protagonist with the algorithm. Just as the detonation sets off, so the explosion sets off, burying the cave, just as Seder had intended. But they got the algorithm out of there, and Seder thinks that the algorithm got buried. Cat kills... Sater on the yacht. She didn't know that they were successful, but it ended up working out timing-wise. Because she planned to kill him the whole time, which you can tell from from pouring the shower water all over the floor and then the, the lotion on the floor and then lotioning up Sater's back. So she intended to kill Sater the entire time, in my perspective. And so she kills Sater and then dives off the ship, which is at the perfect timing for the the past version of herself to see her. Thinking that it's a, a a woman that Sater's having an affair with. And then what they do is they drag the body because their plan is to make his body disappear so that the people of the future don't know what happened to him. Exactly. And then after the explosion and the battle is over, protagonist Neil and Ives uh, stand atop the, the, the small mountain and they decide to break up the algorithm and part ways and Ives decides he's not going to kill everyone that was here and they'll all make that decision whenever they choose to before he leaves neil tells ives that he's going to go with them because neil has to finish his mission and we find out that um, neil reveals that he has known protagonist for years like we mentioned earlier in the podcast and that protagonist recruited him and now the next step in neil's mission it's not over yet he has to pick the lock in the cave before the detonation sets off and so we find out that they don't show it but neil is the one who was shot by that henchman which saved protagonist's life 
that person was inverted, but it was actually Neil who sacrificed his life to save protagonist. Protagonist realizes this now, but Neil tells him what's done is done, so he has to go through with this in order to finish the loop, and it's his destiny. And, and Neil gives the protagonist his third of the algorithm, entrusting it into him because Neil reveals to him that he's the one who re recruited him. Protagonist recruited Neil, and that they've known each other for years. And so after this emotional scene, it actually almost brings me to tears every time because, you know, they, sad. They, they definitely have this beautiful relationship. And again, it's, it's the end of the road of their relationship for Neil. And it's just the beginning for Protagonist because what we eventually learn next with his interaction with Priya is that Protagonist is the entire person who created this entire temporal pincer. He's the one who creates Tenet. He goes in the future to create Tenet. He's the one who inverts back in time. He's the one who um, recruits Neil as a child who's Max. So he's the entire architect, basically, of this Tenet organization in the future. Ties up loose ends by killing Priya at the end. And uh, he'll set himself in motion to eventually create Tenet, like we mentioned before. And it is a phenomenal ending to a fantastic movie. It's so intriguing and mysterious and, and enthralling and exciting. And again, you've never seen anything like it before. And I know it's confusing at first, but on repeat viewings, and if you look into it a bit, and especially if you listen to this episode, you'll understand it a lot more and appreciate it a lot more. And again, a lot of this is subjective, and you can interpret things how you want. That's the beauty of film. That's how Chris Nolan and a lot of these filmmakers intend it with their complex and abstract ideas so you can you can have your own opinions on if if neil is max or not or if or if any if a protagonist is this other person so it's up to you to determine your perspective of the film but i think this is we have the same exact uh uh perspective of this of tenant yeah i love this movie i thought it was fantastic especially seeing it in theaters it was such an experience and an event in itself and i obviously look forward to every nolan movie that comes from now on and this is great. This is a great addition to his filmography. And hopefully this helped clear up the air if you were a little <laughs> confused about the storyline, the concepts, the plot, the inversion, temporal pincers, and all this new terminology you've never heard before. And thank you so much for tuning into this episode number it was 48. Nice, it was nice talking about a, a recent movie. Yeah, I had a blast doing this. Uh, episode 48 of Razor Lost Podcast Tenet. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel, turn on notifications, follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, leave us a five-star review if you can. Follow us and subscribe to us on Patreon to help support the show. And thank you so much for tuning in wherever you are around the world. Take care.